Good morning. Good morning. We'd like to welcome everyone to the uh, Liberty Baptist Church services this morning. And we'll have a few, a few visitors here this morning. And so we would like to, uh, uh, if this is the first time you've ever been here before, we'd like to just uh, welcome you. And uh, we do have a, uh, a coffee time after church. So uh, we'll invite everyone to come out for coffee time afterwards. And uh, if, you're, uh, if you've never been here, we'll get a, a chance to just uh, meet you and, and, and chat. Um, we have uh, a couple of announcements, other announcements in the bulletin this morning. Um, and we have, uh, and I wanted to update everybody on the, uh, uh, the generator situation. We had, been, we had purchased the uh, generators uh, for the church in Parsonage about, about a year ago. And, uh, and we were able to uh, get the generator hooked up for the church here, but the uh, Parsonage is going to need a little bit more work on the, I believe, on the, uh, on the electrical uh, box. Uh, so they weren't able to do that, but uh, hopefully in the next uh, month or so we'll be able to get that, get that put in as well. Uh, we're glad to have Ian and Miranda and Nora back from their uh, their uh, vacate well their their time over in the uh, western part of the state at a uh, at, at a uh, one of the uh, camps over in that area that uh, they have been uh, associated with for many years. Uh, any other announcements that need to be made this morning? <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. We thank you for the sunshine and for the warm weather and for the trees and flowers and the beauty of your creation. We thank you for life. We thank you again that we live in a country where we are free to worship you as we choose and we pray that uh, we would continue to live in that country where our freedoms would not be taken away because of what we do believe or because of what we don't believe we just uh, pray that you would watch over our services this morning and we think of so many countries uh, uh, so many churches all over this country that are worshiping right now and your Holy Spirit is at work among us we thank you for that. We pray that you would watch over our service. We pray that you would watch over Ian as he brings the message and that everything that we say and do this morning would be honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> our scripture reading this morning will be found in Psalm 52. If you'd like to follow along with me, Psalm 52. Psalm 52, why do you boast of evil, you evil man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth, Selah. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. 
He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold. He trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Amen. And if you would turn to number 43, and we will sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let's sing verses 1, 3, and 4. Verses 1, 3, and 4 of number 43. Mm -hmm. Amen. Straight fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, Lord of all. I was gonna say, I'm getting a little head buzz here, so if we could. <laughs> <laughs> starting to sway, you could tell. All right, a little lower, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> and every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I love that song. And now with the uh, ushers will come forward for the morning offering. And if you have a prayer request, uh, you can just uh, write that uh, note on the, uh, uh, on a, on the uh, uh, paper in the, uh, in, the, in the pew in front of you. And, uh, and as our doxology, we'll be singing, uh, We Give Thee But Thine Own, which is on the back page of your bulletin. All right.
thine own, whate'er the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, I trust, O Lord, from thee. Amen. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning, and we we thank you for how you've blessed each one of us in such a mighty way. And we thank you for our homes, and our jobs. We thank you for the income that you've given to us. And we just pray that you would take this offering, and that you would use it to glorify your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. And if you would uh, remain standing, please, and turn in your green book in front of you to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And that would be in the back of your book. <clears throat> God is our refuge and our strength, our prayer. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Good to hear your voices. It's not much more encouraging 
in the world to me than to hear the people of God singing praises. Uh, we're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. From Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, we lift up our souls. O our God, in you we trust. And we come to you, Father, because yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, because everything that is in the heavens above and in the earth below is yours. We belong to you. Yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted as king over all. Everything good that we have, it all comes from you. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And so now we come to you, Father, and we thank you, and we praise your glorious name. And as we come to your throne, and as we see your glory, and praise you for your power and your holiness, we're made aware of our sinfulness and our weakness. And so, Father, we confess that even this week we've wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep, that we've followed too much the desires of our own hearts, that we've offended against your holy laws, that we've left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. And so let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins to God. Father, we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would restore all those who come to you in repentance to confess according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we come, and as we confess, we do so not hesitatingly, but boldly, knowing with confidence that for those who confess, who come into the light, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know this because Jesus told, it, told us it was so. And it is our joy and it is our relief to trust him and to lean on his word for everything in our lives, for our forgiveness, for our justification, for our adoption, for our sanctification, and for the promise of our eternal home with you, Father. We trust in the perfect word and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we walk as pilgrims in this, in this world, that you would teach us to live a godly and a righteous life to the glory of your name. Father, we pray this morning as we do most every week for revival. Not the kind of revival we can work up by human means, but the kind of revival that can only come by a move of the Holy Spirit. That you, Father, would open deaf ears that you would open blind eyes, that you would soften hard hearts to the greatness of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray that in our generation, in our town, in our state, and in our nation, Lord, in our lifetimes, that you would send an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And we pray too, Lord, even in small ways, as we have been seeing this sort of thing, that you would be doing this kind of small-scale revival in our own hearts, 
that you would cause us to come alive in the ways that we've grown cold, that you'd reveal to us areas of our lives where we, we need to grow and hand things over to you, that more and more we would taste the new resurrection life which Jesus has promised us, that more and more we would be like Jesus. Father, we ask your blessing over our state and over our nation. We know that we're pilgrims on this earth, citizens of heaven first, and yet for the short years of our lifetimes, we live in a physical place, in a town, in a county, in a state, in a nation, and so we, we want to ask your blessing over the place where we live. We pray your, your blessing over all those who are in positions of authority. We pray your blessing over the Liberty Select Board and their decision-making processes in, in, in our town. We pray your blessing on our governor and on the main legislature, Lord, that the laws of our land would be just and in accordance with your word. We ask your blessing on the United States Senate and the House. We pray your blessing over the United States Supreme Court. We pray your blessing over our president and our vice president. We pray, Lord, that they would rule well, that you would be at work on their hearts by your Holy Spirit that those who do not know you would be awakened to you. We pray that you'd give our public servants the wisdom to rule well, that as your word says, that we would be able to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray, Father, that you would keep the hands of our elected leaders from evil and that you would establish their rule in righteousness. We know your word says, it is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. And so we pray, Father, that, that you would elevate Christians who love your law to serve in positions in government, so that our community, our state, and our nation would be blessed by righteous governance. We pray that you'd lead our nation to repentance in those areas where we need to repent. We pray that you'd tear down the abortion industry. We pray that you'd lead our nation also to repent of the sexual abominations which are celebrated on every street corner. We pray, Father, that you would lead our nation to repentance, to get on our knees before Jesus and to understand that we've, we've left you, our God, and that we would turn, that we'd be saved. Pray your blessing over the rest of our service this morning, Father, that you would be at work. Unless the Lord builds this house, those who build it labor in vain. We pray, Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be at work on our hearts, pricking us, prodding us, growing us where we need it. May you speak to us by your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. It's on the back of your bulletins. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You can stand together. Open your green book to number three, and we'll sing Yet Not I together.
What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead oh the night has been won and i shall overcome yet not i but through christ in me no fate i dread I know I am forgiven, the future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You can open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, which may come as a bit of a surprise to you. We've been in Genesis for months. Don't worry, we're going back next week. Our normal habit is to move verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a, a book of Scripture. Um, but this week was unusual for me in my sermon prep because I was busy all week directing a youth camp in western Maine. And so I didn't have time for my study, normal study in Genesis. Uh, but the, the study for the week was in the book of Hebrews. And uh, the, the pastor who... Uh, who taught the camp this week. He went through every single verse in the book of Hebrews over the course of five days. And so I did have some opportunity to spend some time in Hebrews. So that is where we'll be this morning. Uh, we're going to aim not to cover every verse, but to cover the entire scope of the book of Hebrews this morning. The letter to the Hebrews is, is just that. It's a letter uh, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, but it's clear this is someone with a pastoral heart. In fact, the, the very structure of the letter of Hebrews indicates to us that it, it's really more of a sermon than a letter. Um, it's structured as a, as a sermon. And the main idea of the book of Hebrews is this, Jesus is greater. Amen. Jesus is greater. Greater And basically what the writer of the Hebrews does is point by point he compares Jesus to what God had done in the Old Testament. He talks about the priesthood. He talks about um, a, a number of things in the Old Testament. And he, he holds them up alongside Jesus and he says, look, Jesus is greater. Basically what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is the greatness of Jesus. He wants, to get, he wants us to get to the last page and just be floored to be astounded with all that Jesus is and all that he's done and alongside that message Jesus is greater the writer of Hebrews also has this intensely pastoral heart where at every turn he, he turns to his people he turns to the audience and he says hold fast to Jesus we'll see that he's actually quite concerned for these people. Apparently, he, he knows the people personally who he's writing to, and he's concerned that they're, they're beginning to let go, that their hearts might be beginning to grow cold. And so at every turn, he's saying, hold fast. Jesus is so great. Don't, don't let him go. And on the other hand, saying, Jesus is so great. Beware if you do let him go. That's a very serious thing. And so that's the message of the letter of Hebrews. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing before we begin. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us Jesus. Show us the glory and the greatness and the wonder of Jesus and all that you have done for us in him. That we would glory in him, that our hearts would be filled with a sense of awe and wonder and that you would show us how to hold fast, that we would cling to Christ with all that we are and all that we have. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, Jesus is 
greater. And this is a seven-point sermon, so we'll, we'll try and keep the points short. First, Jesus is the greater message. He's the greater message. The opening words of the letter to the Hebrews are these. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the writer here is writing to Jewish believers, and they would have known very well the stories of the Old Testament, which recounted how God had spoken across the ages in many ways through the prophets. They would have sort of held these stories in high esteem, remembering back when God spoke to the people through Moses, right? When the mountain shook as God spoke at Sinai or remembering the great revelation through, through Elijah, through Jeremiah, through Isaiah, right? And probably they would have longed for those days, right? Said something like, oh, to be alive when Moses was alive. Oh, to be alive when Isaiah was speaking the word of God. And the writer of the Hebrews is basically saying, don't be stuck in the past, guys. Something greater has happened to you. Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us, by his son, not by the prophets, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This isn't just a, a mere human speaking the word of God. Here, actually, we have the creator in the flesh. In the face of Jesus, we see God himself shown up on our doorstep and speaking to us. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand Jesus is a much greater messenger. And he's bringing a much greater message than those prophets brought. And he goes on to compare Jesus to the angels. The rest of chapter 1 is this comparison. He's doing a scripture study on whether Jesus is greater than the angels. And his determination is, yes, much greater. And that may seem obvious, but the point is that angels are messengers. That's actually what the, the word angel means, is messenger. And so he's holding up the angels, right, and saying, wouldn't it be cool if, you, if an angel appeared to you? That'd floor you, right? You'd be astounded. Something greater has happened, right? It, it's not just that an, an angel has appeared and spoken to us. It's that the Son of God himself has shown up and spoken to us. And the takeaway from all of this begins in chapter 2, that very important word, therefore. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Again, he's holding these two things up together. He's like, you know how people get in trouble when they don't listen to the word of God through an angel? You know how when a prophet speaks the word of God, to, to believe and to obey is life? And to disbelieve and to disobey is death? He's saying, how much more when the Son of God shows up on our doorsteps? Sometimes we can, we can actually sort of do the opposite thing with the New Testament and think that somehow what's, the New Testament is sort of like Old Testament light, right? Um, it's the Old Testament God only a little bit nicer, it's the same God, and he's actually spoken in a greater way in, through Jesus. He's spoken through his son. And the writer of Hebrews, his point here is actually it's a more serious thing to neglect 
what God has spoken through Jesus than it was to neglect anything spoken in the Old Testament. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying, look, it's, this is pretty obvious. God, God's not playing around with what he's told us in Jesus. He showed up in the flesh, poured out his spirit, attested by many witnesses. You can't escape this. This is undeniable. So he's saying, Let's be real careful to pay close attention to what Jesus has said. So first, Jesus is the greater message. He's the greater messenger. Next, he moves on and beginning in chapter 3, makes the point that Jesus is the greater Moses. It's the greater Moses. Of course, Moses was one of the great prophets. So now we're kind of doing a little case study. Okay, let's take the greatest of the prophets could argue that Moses is the greatest. He wrote the first five books of Scripture. Moses would have been highly exalted um, in the, the minds of these early Jewish believers. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he, again, he's doing this comparison thing. He holds up Moses. He says, you, you know Moses. Moses was faithful. He's this faithful prophet, faithful messenger of God, and, and so is Jesus. But they're not quite on the same level. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and are boasting in our hope. So the writer of Hebrews uses this metaphor of a house. He says, think about a house. You can understand a house. Um, he says, it's, it's like this. Moses was like a servant in the house. And he was faithful. He was a good servant. It wasn't his house. He didn't build it. He didn't own it. When Christ showed up, he wasn't just another servant. It's his house. He's the son. He's the heir. He built it. It belongs to him. Right? So if Moses was this great prophet who showed up and we should listen to him as a servant, as a faithful servant, how much more when the owner shows up, we should pay attention. He's a greater Moses who brings a greater rest. A greater rest. We don't have time to get into everything that's going on here in chapters 3 and 4. But the writer of Hebrews talks about this idea of rest. And Moses, in bringing the people into the promised land, was promising his people rest. Right? Well, God had promised the people rest, and he was using Moses. Of course, Moses didn't actually get into the promised land. Eventually, it was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. And they were supposed to find rest there. Rest. But 
part of the writer's point here is to say they actually didn't get the rest they needed. Chapter 4, verse 8, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And he's quoting here from Psalm 95, where David speaks about a rest that remains for the people of God. Verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay, so this idea of rest. And again, he's doing a comparison. He's holding up the rest that that believers in the Old Testament experienced, right? That Israel found a kind of rest in the land. But you read the Old Testament, it wasn't that restful at all, right? They're constantly wandering away and, and worshiping idols. You've got occasionally a good king here or there, but, but mostly they're vagabonds, right? And they make a mess of the land that God had given them. They're not faithful to him. They don't really rest in the land. And so we need a better rest. We need a better Moses who will bring us a better rest. And it's Jesus who can give us that rest. By way of application, the writer then says in verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So again, he's, he's doing a comparison and he's remembering the disobedient generation in the wilderness. Remember them, right? As Moses is making, they're making their way up to the promised land, a whole generation is unfaithful. They don't believe the word of God. They don't believe that God is strong enough to bring them into the promised land. They doubt, and God says, I'm not going to bring you into the promised land. And a whole generation has to die off, 40 years in the desert, until the new generation rises up, and it's, it's they who are brought into the promised land. Those who don't believe won't enter God's rest. The writer of Hebrews, is, he's drawing a comparison. He said, if that was true in Moses' day, with Moses' level of revelation, how much more in our day? Right? How much clearer has God spoken through his son? And if we don't believe God in our day, how much more shall we not enter that rest? Right? If we wander away from God, we won't enter that rest. So again, with a pastoral spirit, he's, he's pleading with them, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's looking around at these people that he knows and he sees some people who are like, on the, they're wavering, they're on the outskirts and he wonders if they, if they ever really had faith to begin with and he says, I, I want you to be sure. Strive to enter this rest. Don't take this lightly. This is a serious thing. Are you in the faith? He's going to continue arguing along that line as we go along. Jesus is greater. He's the greater messenger. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater rest. Next, he's the greater high priest. The greater high priest. And this is a major theme of the book of Hebrews. This, this spans a number of chapters Most of you are probably familiar with the Old Testament office of priest. The priests basically had one job. The priest's job was to bring the people of God into the presence of God by means of sacrifice. 
priest's job is to bring the people of God into the presence of God by means of sacrifice. These priests labored all day around the temple, which is where the presence of God dwelt in a special way in the Old Testament. And the trouble with the presence of God is that sinful people cannot enter the presence of God. This is actually just the basic human trouble, is that we are sinners and our God is holy. It's that God is God and we have rebelled against him. And in his holiness, God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so the whole notion of the priesthood, the whole notion of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, is that somehow, someone, something has to die for sin. Sin has consequences, and something needs to take those consequences. And if there hadn't been priests and sacrifices, if the people of Israel had come into the presence of God, they just would have died. And so somehow we, we need a mediator. We need someone to bring us into the presence of God. And so this whole, God gave the people the gift of this priesthood. He said, I'm going to appoint for you priests, and what they're going to do is they're going to offer sacrifices. And these animals symbolically are going to bear your sin as you sacrifice them so that you as a people can actually come into the presence of God so that I can actually dwell among you, so that I can be your God and you can be my people. This is God's promise to the people. So that's the whole idea of a priesthood. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue, basically, is that Old Testament priesthood wasn't good enough. It was a placeholder. It was a teacher. It was a way of showing us we need a mediator. We need someone to bring us into the presence of God. But what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue is Jesus is actually the better priest. He's the better priest. He's a great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then grow confident, then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the point here is that we actually have a priest who is truly human, who has experienced temptation like us, yet without, sin, yet without sin, who even now is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's up there saying, come on in. Come on into the presence of God. I've made a way. And we're going to see in just a second what that way is. The, this description of this greater high priest spans the next few chapters. But first, the writer goes down a rabbit trail. And we're going to follow him down the rabbit trail because it's a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail. So by verse 10 of Hebrews 5, uh, the writer of Hebrews is beginning to compare Jesus with this guy named Melchizedek, which is a mouthful to begin with, um, and sort of a confusing concept. Why, who's this Melchizedek? What does he have to do with anything? He's going to get to that. Um, but as soon as he mentions Melchizedek, he goes on and he says in verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. 
since you have become dull of hearing. He said, I got, I got tons I could say on this. I, I'm going to go on talking about the greatness of Christ. But I worry you're not going to understand it, he says. Because you've become dull of hearing. He, he knows these people. We don't know what indications he has, but somehow he understands that the, the people he's writing this letter to, their ears are becoming dull, the hearing aid's been turned down, and they're missing a lot. Verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says, I've got this steak dinner to serve you, theologically, right? There's, there's all kinds of glories that we could explore, but you guys aren't ready for it yet. You're, you're, he's like, you're 40, year, 40 years old spiritually, and you're still on the baby bottle. It's embarrassing. They'd stalled out spiritually. And this is sort of a wake-up call. Now, there's a way in which it's, it seems like harsh language, but you can, you can hear his pastoral heart here. He deeply cares about these people. And he wants them not just to be complacent in their spiritual infancy, but to grow. Chapter 6, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings and of the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, these are all good things, right? This is the, this is the basic Christian doctrine he, he lays out there. But he says, you guys still haven't gotten that down. We, we can't move past it because we're, we're still trying to get you to repent of sin and to believe in the resurrection, Verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. If God permits. And then he says some things which are very hard to hear. Verse 4, he says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, these verses have been subject of much discussion and debate across the years by Christian thinkers as to exactly how to understand this, and we don't have time, as we're trying to do the whole book, to get into the weeds of that discussion. But I take these verses as describing a Christian who has tasted of something of the gospel. 
tasted of the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They have some taste of spiritual things, and yet they fall away. There's no root in them. I'd compare this to Jesus' parable of the seeds, right? Some of the seeds grow and they hit good soil. and they, right? Some people come to faith in Christ and it's like boom and life and it continues. And some people come to faith in Christ and there's, there's a spring of life for a minute, but there's no good soil. Right? And it's actually just the appearance of life and then they, they die spiritually and fall away. I think that's what he's describing here. That there's some people who, who taste some kind of spiritual life, receive some kind of benefit from the word, see some kind of joy in the gospel of Jesus, but it's fleeting, it's not lasting, there's no roots and they fall away. And he's bringing all this up because he's warning these people. He's saying, watch that this may be you. He's, he's seen them stalling out and he's worried. I worry that some of you might be here. That, that for some reason you like the gospel for a season and it's, it's sort of nice and it's convenient, but you might fall away. And he sees this sort of spiritual stalling out, I think, as a sign. He's like, I'm worried that this may be you, that, you're, that that's the next step. And so I think he's saying, examine yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. Because if you're not, you're, that's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place to be. And we ought to examine ourselves and wonder, is, is that me? Is my spiritual complacency a sign that I'm, I'm not really in? That I'm not really growing? What direction am I heading? And then he speaks a word of assurance. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, hear his, his heart, right? In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. His, his hope is, I don't think that's the case with you guys. Press in, press into Jesus, and it won't be you. So that's his rabbit trail, wearing his heart on his sleeve. He circles back now to Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek have to do with anything? Right? So this is a sub-point under Jesus is a greater high priest. So he talks about Melchizedek, and we'll actually come to Melchizedek eventually in our Genesis study, probably in the next couple of months. Melchizedek is a very interesting figure. Okay? We don't know where he comes from. We don't know what happens to him after we see him in Genesis. He, he has uh, an encounter with with uh, Abraham and blesses him and then he's gone but Melchizedek is a king and he's a priest the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness and we're told that he's the king of Salem Salem that's Shalom it means peace so he's the king of peace and righteousness and he's also a, a priest of God a priest of the most high God we don't know how he got there 
We don't know where he come from. He's like Cotton Eye Joe. Where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from? Cotton Eye Joe. We don't know. He's a mysterious figure. But the point of bringing up Melchizedek is that the, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus isn't a priest like your Old Testament priests. He's, a, he's of a different kind. He's of a different order. The Old Testament priests, they were of the order of Levi and of Aaron. Right? They were of the tribe of Levi, and the, the priests proper were sons of Aaron. They're all descended from Aaron. Jesus, even if you look at his genealogies, he's not of the line of Levi. He's the of the line of Judah, right? The kingly line of Judah. And yet, he's a high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews is explaining wait, wait a second, how could one of the line of Judah also be a priest? How could a king also be a priest? And so he says, well, it's like Melchizedek, remember him? Jesus is of the, of the order of Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest. He's a king and a priest. This is a better priest. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he uses the Old Testament to prove this, that the Messiah, when he came, would be a king and a priest, just like Melchizedek. And then he names a number of ways in which Jesus' priesthood is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Again, he's doing this comparison thing. Priests in, in Aaron's line versus Jesus. What's the difference? Chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You needed a lot of them and you needed to replace them because they kept dying, which is a problem. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you want someone to bring you into the presence of God, you don't want someone who's going to die. You want someone who's going to live forever. And the promise of Scripture is that actually Jesus is at the right hand of God even now as our high priest and he will never die. He's the everlasting king, the everlasting priest. Hallelujah. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost Amen. those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's a greater high priest. And the amazing thing is not only that he's the greater high priest, he's also the greater sacrifice. The greater sacrifice. He's a greater high priest who makes a greater sacrifice. Verse 27, he, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Remember, the priests had to offer sacrifices on, on their own behalf. They're sinners too. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he's not a sinner. But also, that he doesn't, Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifice over and over again. Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That Jesus is the righteous king, the righteous priest who actually offers up himself as a perfect sacrifice. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
Not only is Jesus our high priest, but actually he is the living sacrifice who sits at the right hand of God. He's the risen lamb of God. When he's depicted in the Revelation, what is he pictured as? Well, both a lion, right, the king, but also the lamb with blood in, in his side. He's the crucified lamb who lives. He's the eternal sacrifice sufficient to cover all our sins who lives and reigns and intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't have to go anywhere to find a perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you want to get into the presence of God, look no further than Jesus, right? He's everything you need. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. And he can perfectly bring us into the presence of God. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. And he says it's also a better covenant. It's a better covenant. A greater covenant. And it's a greater covenant that brings us into a greater tent. The high priests and the, the priests in the old covenant, what did they do? Well, they could bring the people into the courtyard. They could bring the people close to the presence of God on earth. Now, God's high and holy heavenly throne room was not in the tabernacle. He made his presence known in a special way in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Um, that's not sort of the, the center of God's presence. And the next point that the writer of Hebrews makes is actually that the priests could bring the people to this earthly tent, but Jesus... Ushers, up, ushers us up into the heavenly tent. Chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And he goes through and he describes this um, this earthly tabernacle. He describes how the priests would bring people into the, the earthly presence of God. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, he compares it with Christ and he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus actually ushers us into a greater tent, the greater presence of God, that when we pray in Jesus' name, we, our prayers go right up to him. And not only that, but actually God is making us his tent, his tabernacle, that actually, and this is an amazing thing, right? Another way in which what we have received and tasted in the new covenant is far better than the old covenant. In the old covenant, the presence of God dwelt in a tent and the people could look at it. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in our hearts by faith. God has tabernacled. He's made his home among us. 
And all this enabled only through Jesus Christ. He continues to flesh out the, this idea of Jesus as a greater priest, the greater sacrifice. He points out that the animals in the Old Covenant, they couldn't actually cleanse from sin. 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were always just a picture, a picture, an object lesson, showing us we need someone to die for our sins. Jesus is the only one who can actually die in our place. He's the perfect Lamb of God whom we put our hands on and put our sins on and he takes them willingly. Bearing our death, bearing our sins in our place. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so after this whole discourse on this perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, right, this, this greater tabernacle, 10 verse 19, here's, here's the Here's the money. Here's where it really comes together. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Don't keep your distance from God. What are you doing dabbling in spiritual things and not actually pressing all the way in? He says, go in. Walk right into the presence of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just walk right in. Jesus is there. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And again here, after extolling the greatness of this salvation, he then says, be careful. He says, hold fast, press in. You can have confidence in Jesus, but beware lest you fall away. If you neglect this great salvation. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, after hearing the gospel, and even playing around with the idea of believing it for a while and then walk away, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And again, he does this comparison. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? He says, you remember in Moses' time, they disobeyed the, the, the word? How much more? This is a greater messenger. This is a greater message. This is a greater rest. This is a greater salvation. And if you taste of it and then turn away, how much more? How much more? Again here, I don't think this is referring to people who are truly in the faith. Uh, 
Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John about those whom the Father has given to him. He says, all that the Father has given to me, I will never let go of. Right? He's, pu- he's put them in my hand, and I will never let them go. He said, then he goes on, he says, I and the Father are one. Those who are truly in the faith, God will hold on to. I think he's describing here people who are dabbling in the faith. They've put their toes in the water. They've tasted something of the sweetness of Christ, but they're not all in. And I think he's saying there's a greater culpability if you've heard the word of God and even begun to taste of it, and then you reject it and turn away. Again here, he's he's not bringing the hammer down in a harsh way. He actually goes on to speak about the discipline of the Lord being kindness. He's, his, he's pouring out his heart to these people, and he's seeing signs. He's like, I'm, I'm not sure you're really in. The way you're living, I'm not sure if you're just playing religion or if you're all in with Jesus. And so he's warning them. It's a dangerous thing to play around with Jesus. And again, a reassurance at the end of this passage, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Again, he has hope for these people. He says, I don't think, I, I worry that that might be you, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Okay, Jesus is the greater message, the greater Moses, the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater, he brings in the greater covenant, and he also points us to the greater city. We've got two points left, and this won't take too long. The greater country. In chapter 11, he lists these men of faith of old. He goes through the whole Old Testament, almost, and lists not all, but many of the great men and women of faith across the Old Testament. Um, This is maybe the most famous chapter of of Hebrews. If you haven't read anything else, you've probably heard something from Hebrews chapter 11. It's the great hall of faith. And he, he points out how all the people in the Old Testament, they were all living by faith in God's promises. That though they saw some of God's promises fulfilled, they never saw the whole thing. All of them died in faith, we're told. So he begins by listing the people we've talked about, Abel and Enoch, Noah, he, he talks about Abraham, who we're going to begin talking about next week in Genesis, and Sarah, his wife. And all of these people, he says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And he actually says it's, it's, it's actually the same thing with all of these people who follow. Moses, even those after Moses, even David. These are people who, who came into the promised land. These are people who saw Jerusalem built, who saw the temple built. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, even these people, they hadn't, they hadn't seen yet the fullness of what God had promised. They all died in faith, looking for a better city, for a better country. In other words, all those who are of faith, all those people who would follow God, we are all pilgrims and we are all strangers. That God has not yet brought us home yet, to the true and lasting and final home. But he has prepared for them a city, a better country. This should call to mind those two chapters at the end of Revelation, which we've, we've touched on a number of times in the last couple of years of the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the promise that one day Jesus will make all things new and he will renew the heavens and he will renew the earth and he will, he will build the holy, he's even now building the holy city Jerusalem and it will come down from heaven and there we will dwell with him forever and he will be our God and we will be his people. And according to the writer of Hebrews, that's what all these people had their eyes fixed on. Their eternal home. The new city. And he goes on and urges us by way of application. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, think about all these people who have gone before. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the verses after this, it seems clear that the, the people he's writing to have some expectation that they're going to go through difficulty, they're going to go through trial. They've actually already undergone difficulty and they're probably going to undergo more. And he's preparing them for this. He's saying, listen, we're pilgrims, we're strangers. We haven't tasted everything that God has promised us, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on his promises. Fix your eyes in hope on the city which God is preparing, an eternal home. Jesus is preparing for us a, a greater country, so run. Run, fix your eyes on him and run. And finally, through Jesus, we have come to a greater Zion. The end of chapter 12, he compares what we have come to as Christians with Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where God spoke to the people through Moses, and it's a stirring and almost a disturbing scene, right? A cloud comes down over the mountain and God's presence is there in this storm at the top of the mountain and Moses goes up to it and the whole, the whole place is shaking, right? And God speaks and the people hear his thundering voice and they're, they're terrified. They say, please talk to Moses. We don't want to, we can't bear to hear the voice of God. And you can sort of imagine that the Jews across the ages probably all looked back to that point. Maybe we do the same thing and wonder, what would it have been like to be there at the mountain, right? to, to feel the, the, the thunder of God's voice? Right? Or maybe we, we don't wish we were there, right? But, but sometimes we wonder, it's like, well, what would it have been to, to see the great wonders of the Old Testament? And maybe we sometimes have a sneaking suspicion that the New Testament is, is somehow a little bit less exciting than the Old what does 
Lord's Day worship have to do with Mount Sinai? I mean, it's like, how can, how can it even compare? But the writer of Hebrews says, you've actually come to something greater. Hebrews 12, verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire of darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages could be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. He says, it's not like that. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that when we pray to God in Jesus' name, when we come together and we worship God in Jesus' name, spiritually, we're actually lifted up and we're made a part of this great gathering around the throne of God. Through Jesus Christ, we're brought to a better mountain than Sinai. We're brought to Zion. And we're lifted up to be with him. The, the Christian faith the Christian life can sometimes look by exterior, exterior appearances somewhat pedestrian, somewhat boring. It's like reading your Bible and praying and showing your neighbor love, and cooking a meal and eating together and taking the Lord's Supper together and baptism and singing together it's like what's what's so special about all this and what the writer of hebrews would have us to understand i think is this isn't just some ordinary thing the christian life what's happened to us in jesus is that we've been lifted up to the throne of god that we've been ushered into the very presence of god jesus is immensely great his salvation is immensely great it should astound us and so as an application of all of this he's he says hold fast hold fast to the salvation don't don't let your eyes grow dim to how great jesus is and so like wander away and begin to let yourself drift he says no keep jesus in your sights keep the greatness of this salvation front and center and put the blinders on don't don't allow anything to lead you astray hold on to jesus run after jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith hold fast to him that's a message of hebrews jesus is greater hold fast may we do so let's pray father we ask that you would watch over us that like a shepherd you would lead us that by your Holy Spirit you would, hold, you would hold us fast even as we hold tight to you. That when our eyes begin to dim, when our ears begin to deafen, that you would open them, that you would awaken our hearts again to the greatness of Jesus Christ. 
We pray, Father, that we would not be those who taste and turn away, but that we would be those who see Jesus and run after you with all that we are. We pray, Father, even today and this week that you would pinpoint those things in our lives, those weights that are holding us down, those sins that cling to us so tightly, that we would cast them aside, that by the power of Jesus we might be freed from them, and that you would usher us on towards eternal life. Watch over us, Lord, as we as we are pilgrims in this weary world, that we would live in hope and that we would share that hope with those around us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. closing hymn is uh, number 688 savior like a shepherd lead us and we'll sing the first and last verses and don't forget uh, coffee time out back after the service 688 let's stand and sing the first and last verses savior like a shepherd lead us Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us thine, we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us thine, we are. Early let us seek thy favor, Early let us do thy will. Blessed Lord and only Savior, with thy liver beings fill. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast loved us, love us still. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast loved us us love us still. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, and 